This is Pentecost uh, 2023, even though it's Saturday. And so in, in traveling with Heidi last night, I said, you know, I don't even know what I'm sharing tomorrow. I've got, and so I had three things that were kind of cooking. This was one of them, the end of which hopefully we reach, and the end of which, so telegraphing, the end insight is one that I gained from Craig S. Keener in uh, Spirit Hermeneutics. And his, just his ministry and his demeanor is just a real blessing to me. This is a very dedicated man of God who's also an academic, who's also a charismatic. And so all, all those things put together, just some of the things that he shares, it's just, and he's got a very winsome spirit. And so uh, I want to say that if we, if we get to the end of this, this insight that hit me like a thunderbolt was like, okay, I should take stock of that. But it's going to take a minute to get there. And part of getting there is, is tying together or beginning to tie together some of this cosmic stuff that we've been talking about. The, the inheritance of the nations, the, uh, the, the disinheritance of the nations from Genesis 11, and Deuteronomy 32, 8, and God's dispersal of the nations and putting them underneath the lesser Elohim. All these themes which seem like, well, that's rather fantastical from the Old Testament, but what has that got to do with us today? Well, it's got plenty of it to do with us today. We just sat like for 15 minutes before we began, you know, worship music and, and worshiping the Lord together, uh, discussing the corruptness of government and, and, and things of this nature and, and whether we should trust human government. I mean, is that even a no-brainer? You know, I, I, it's, the answer is no, but why are they there? Why are they there? Why are nation-states there? Why is Romans 13 where it is? You know, So part of the world's arrangement as it is is still under the sovereign hand of God. Amen. And we need to understand God's moves in the world through history so that we cooperate well with Him. And part of the re-education process that, I, that I've just been kind of walking through in the past several months has been just a re-examination. You know, it, it's, I think it's healthy spiritually and intellectually, to re-examine your possessions. Not as a, you know, was, should I be believing God or not? Not in that sort of frame, but it, it, I've been taught this thing in a particular way and I've been behaving in a particular way because of what I've been taught. Have I even attempted to look at this from a different angle? Have I even considered... Is there another option? And, or have I heard another option and just dismissed it out of hand? As if, for instance, am I such a rabid Protestant evangelical that I believe the Church of Jesus Christ began in the 16th century? And that these people that, that were called priests for centuries weren't doing anything? That, you know, that, that perhaps Augustine and, and Tertullian had nothing to add to the Christian faith? Or maybe they influenced the Christian faith in ways that I don't care to admit because... I was raised a militant Protestant. Little things like that. So, in the sovereignty of God, my life experience has been to have been involved in a lot of different aspects of Christianity, from being, from going to, you know, a, a Roman Catholic school in a fascist state, to, <laughs> to being involved in a cult, to being a charismatic, to having also been brought up as a Baptist evangelical. 
a lot of places to be, and yet God is still God, right? And and he he still gets through. So in considering what to share today, I thought, well, I wonder, you know, one of the three things that I explained to Heidi, I it dealt with Pentecost. I said, well, when's Pentecost? And so I'm, I'm wearing the car last night. I'm like, Pentecost, 2023. It's, it's May 28th, it's supposed to be. Hopefully I looked it up right, because today's the 27th, right? Yeah, it is. I <laughs> so, think it is. Yeah, yeah. So tomorrow, I think, is officially Pentecost Sunday. But we meet on Saturday, so it's... So today's 50 days after the resurrection. It would be. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, or tomorrow. 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 Yeah. So, um, the subtitle of this is The Cross, the Kingdom, and the Outpouring. So, here's Acts 2, 1, 4, 2, verses 1 through 4, and I posted it up there as block text to make a point. <laughs> the rest of them won't be like this. But, I... I enjoy reading the Bible broken down in chapters and verses. It's helpful for reference. It's helpful for assimilating the Scripture. But it also interrupts the flow. Think of the best story you ever read, and now imagine it broken up in verses and, and, and in chapters. Now, most books we read are, are divided in chapters. But hey, what's your tendency when reading a novel when you get to the end of a chapter? Stop. You, you stop, unless the author's done his job right, and he makes you turn Next the page. Chapter. Right, right. But, but that's the thing. And so, so there is this, there is this superimposition on the text that fights against how the text was written for us to read. And, and so one of my moves in this reorientation is, is a, a move, a devotional move out of the King James Bible into the ESV, uh, and particularly an ESV that is in paragraph form. So at least I'm reading paragraphs of thought, um, at least as the translators see them as paragraphs of thought, instead of just seeing every verse as its own independent. Does that make sense? Yeah. So it forces, a, it helps. It helps to move you into a contextual read. I was going to mention, um, I've been doing a similar thing as I've been reading to the family. Uh -huh. I've just been like going by pages and ignoring the chapters and sometimes just stopping in the middle of the chapter and dropping the bookmark in and picking up. It's right. just like, why? Oh, why not? I'm yeah, why not? I mean, chapter divisions start out bad in right. the Bible right. in that if, if you're going to make a chapter division, cha uh, Genesis 1 shouldn't end where it ends. It should end at the end of Genesis 2-3. Exactly two, three, or four, and then pick up two with these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. Yep. Pick it up after the Sabbath. Yep. Why are you taking this? Anyhow, mm -hmm. so it's just simple things like that. right? But we're talking about Pentecost. Acts 2, verse 1 through 4. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So there's a lot just put right in here. So thinking of the divine side of scriptural inspiration, where Luke beloved physician who travels with Paul finally sits down to write a two-volume history. 
that we know of as Luke and Acts. But it's, you know, it's, it's, it's Luke and then Luke 2 or Acts and Acts 2, whatever you want to call it. It's a two-volume set, and, and they are written in, in, a, in a structure that, that really marries each other, so on and so forth. But he brings in a lot of elements in this opening of Acts. He brings in a lot of elements that are woven through the entirety of the Hebrew Bible. And this is God showing up as a rushing mighty wind. Ezekiel standing on the Kabar River and the whirlwind comes with flashes of fire and lightning. Abram is put to sleep in a fiery pot and, and, and smoking goes through the cut pieces, right? The column of fire and the column of cloud in the Old Testament. So this... This wind and fire imagery is throughout Scripture to indicate the divine has arrived. Sinai is on fire. The chariots of God are there. The winds... So all these things are there. And depending upon how you have uh, been taught or exposed to Acts chapter 2, that might have been a piece that you missed. That sovereign act. Maybe you did, maybe you didn't. But it's, you know, it's an intentional, I'm hooking you. The divine is coming in. And it comes in as a rushing mighty wind. So, I want to review Pentecost real quick. I, I mean, most of us are fairly aware of what it is, but I thought the review would be helpful. So, I wanted to take a quick path from Passover to Pentecost. Okay? So, Passover which is celebrated on Abib 14 or Nisan 14, depending on which na naming convention you use. I think Nisan comes from Babylonia, but this is what they were using. It's the middle of the month. It's, it's the day of Passover. You remember the story. So this is the Lord's Passover when the uh, children of Israel in Egypt are going to sacrifice the lamb and paint their lentils with blood, and then the Lord's going to pass over them and their, their firstborn are not going to be killed. The firstborn of the Egyptians are going to suffer this. But they are not. And then this, this one-day feast, this one-day celebration, is to be celebrated year by year. So you find that in Leviticus 23 as well. So that's Exodus 12, 1-14, and, and Leviticus 23, 5. Well, in 1 Corinthians 5, 7... We read, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Christ is our Passover lamb. So the fulfillment of what occurred in the Exodus happened for us at the cross. As John said, behold, the lamb of God who takes the sin away from the world. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. That's the latter part of 1 Corinthians 5.7. Well, right after that then begins the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That's a week-long feast. So you have Passover, that's its own event, and then the Feast of Unleavened Bread is the festival that continues on that week. So that season's an encapsulated season. You get it Passover's one day, and then you have the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, and we have a song regarding one of our feasts, you know, uh, that involved the 12 days of Christmas, right? <laughs> yeah. right? 
So we understand Christmas as being a celebration day, but as it was as it was practiced in the medieval and, and, and late church, there were more things going on in that season than just the day. Does that make sense? So, anyhow, unleavened bread starts on the 15th, goes through the 21st of Nisan. It's a seven-day feast. And uh, the, in 1 Corinthians 5.8, Paul writes, Let us celebrate with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. That this is, you know, we, we get rid of this bitterness and all this other stuff, and that we celebrate, we as Christians celebrate Passover with sincerity and truth. That's our celebration of unleavened bread. Now, see those dates there? Nisan 15 through 21. Inside that time is this other feast, first fruits, And that's on the 16th. 16th is when they brought in a sheaf of the first fruits of the barley harvest. And it also a grain harvest of fine flour with oil and a drink offering of wine. So, that's first fruits. That's in the, that's in the middle, if you will, of this unleavened bread offering. 1 Corinthians 15.20 says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. So Christ is this firstfruits of the harvest. And that firstfruits of the harvest was celebrated in the Feast of Firstfruits where they brought in a sheaf of the barley, right? And they waved it before the Lord and they brought in grain, oil, and wine. Flour, oil, and wine. And then begins the count. So, from that Sabbath of, I think, of unleavened bread, it's seven Sabbaths and then a day, basically. You can look at the language in Leviticus 23, verse 15 through 21. This is why Pentecost is the Greek, you know, Pentecost day, and it's 50th. This is why it's the Feast of Pentecost, the 50th day. The 50th day from Feast of Unleavened Bread or the Feast of First Fruits, one or the other. So, when you... When you read the New Testament, you find out that, that Christ in His resurrected body was on the earth for 40 days, showing Himself by many proofs to have Him risen from the grave. And then He tells His disciples to go and wait in Jerusalem until they receive the promise of the Father that they're due with power from on high. This is where we get the 10-day spread from the ascension to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Okay? Because of the 50 days. He's really excited about technology, James is. <clears throat> so, it's 50 days after the first fruits wave offering. That's what counts down, starts to count. They do the wave offering and they, they count the 50 days. And it's the first fruit offerings of the wheat harvest. So, the Feast of Wheat celebrates the end gathering of the wheat harvest. Really technical here. Unleavened bread. Okay? Right? We're getting out of slavery. We've got to rush out of Egypt. No time to put lavin in the bread. Lavin then becomes a symbol for corruption. But it's not only a symbol of corruption. And so you don't bring any offerings to the Lord with lavin in it. Feast of unleavened bread. Um, you bring in these grain offerings and such. The feast of first fruits. A, a flour and oil. Unleavened. Okay? But you hit Pentecost. The feast of weeks. And you bring in the wheat harvest and you bring in two loaves of lavin bread. 
And it's, it's the signature offering of Pentecost. It's two loaves of lavened bread. And the sacrifices are characterized as peace offerings because they're fellowship offerings. The priests are going to eat and the people are going to eat. And everybody's having a big old time in gathering feast before the Lord. That is Pentecost. Okay? It's the wheat harvest. John 12, verse 24. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So, we know that Jesus is talking about his death. I, the hearers at the time are like, there he goes again. <laughs> I can imagine. Because they, they didn't get the fact that Messiah was going to die. But when he's talking about, when we think in terms, not of metaphor, but literally, about this kernel of wheat dying in the ground, what are we talking about? Planting seed. Planting seed and it growing. So what looks like death, or what can even be talked about as death, in metaphor, actually becomes abundant life in actuality. And this is what Jesus is talking about. But his referent is wheat. His referent is wheat. And this kernel of wheat going into the ground and dying. But if it dies, then it bears much fruit. Well, he doesn't leave it with himself because he's talking to who? He's talking to his disciples. He's putting out an invitation for disciples. And so we hear this message and we're very thankful. And we're like, whoo, glad Jesus did that. And then he says, whoever loves his life loses it. <laughs> and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. This is in the context of wheat falling into the ground, dying and bearing much harvest. And which festival celebrates the wheat harvest? Pentecost. Pentecost celebrates the wheat harvest. We're used to metaphors. I mean, we've got bunny rabbits and yeah. Easter eggs. And yeah, yeah. We, we've got all kinds of metaphors hopping around, don't we? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, again, Pentecost in the Torah is the annual harvest festival of Thanksgiving. It's the Feast of Weeks. It's in the law regarding the Feast of Weeks that the children of Israel are told not to harvest the corner of their fields so that the poor have a place to gather food from. It's, it's the harvest time where generosity and thanksgiving overflow in this thing, these fellowship offerings. It's the only offering that involves lavin. Okay? By the middle of the second century before Christ, it had become as well a covenant renewal celebration commemorating the giving of the law on Sinai. Now, well, how, how would the rabbis come up with that? Why? Well, you've got in celebration and in giving of the legal code, you've got Passover, unleavened bread, count some weeks, and then you have Pentecost. In the history of Israel, you have Passover, you have them running out of Egypt with unleavened bread, and then you have them going through the Red Sea and arriving at Sinai and then receiving Torah. 
Okay? Mm-hmm. And so, and in tradition, it becomes not just the Feast of Weeks and ingathering, it becomes the celebration of the reception of the law. And this is where we need to gain greater and greater appreciation for God's working in culture and condescension. And in condescension, I mean, God is pretty intent in communicating to His creatures on a wavelength they can hear Him. Okay? And so, um, it's not a new thing in missiology. What is missiology? Missiology is, is the, uh, the understanding and the, and the theory of missions. Okay? For the record, there, there are things that the Church of Jesus Christ did for centuries that the boys in Geneva said, you know, missions, Catholics do that. We're not doing missions. Uh, miracles, Catholics do that. We're not doing miracles. So, you know, let's shut that Holy Spirit stuff down. That's an add-on. They didn't say let's shut the Holy Spirit stuff down. They're like, miracles, we ain't doing that. Right? Because Catholics are doing that. It took the Protestant church centuries before they sent out their first missionaries. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Catholic martyrs were dying by droves all over the planet. And you can have all kinds of angst about whether they were doing it for good or for bad. But I'm telling you, for people who for centuries only knew that as the church and the vehicle of God on earth, I'm sure there were many good men and women who died bringing the gospel all over the land. Okay? Under the, under the flag of Rome. Protestant heretic? No. <laughs> but I, I share that because the Catholic Church in its latter history, which is part of why um, Protestantism, the Reformation, one of the reasons the Reformation began to take hold is because the Catholic Church got in this habit of syncretism. Syncretism is not contextualization. What is that? Syncretism is where you take aspects... I need a a thesaurus for this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Syncretism is where you take aspects of a pagan religion and you weld it to yours to to make your religion more palatable to the natives. This is where we get Easter bunnies and eggs and things. And And Christmas trees. And And, you know, okay, so we can throw Christmas trees in there, but I'm not going to get sidetracked. All right, so... We'll just throw it all in. But but contextualization, like, um, like the book Eternity in Their Hearts, where, you know, missionaries come in and they find the tribe and they have this thing about the... The ransom child or whatever, you know? And, and so this culture has this, you know, if one tribe wants to make peace with another tribe, they give up the prince and they give it to the other tribe, you know? And, and the missionary goes, wow, that sounds an awful lot like the gospel. That's who Jesus is. Jesus is the peace child. That is contextualization, okay? I mean, that's a, that's a really brief example of it. But contextualization, for instance, um, Joel and Lacey, Contextualization is a lot of what they're doing in missions work. That they're coming in and sharing the love of Jesus to indigenous peoples and they're allowing that to take hold in the context where it's in. And so there are cultural things that other people do that I think we have a tendency in our, in our approach to some form of religious puritanism to demonize, you know, well, and that was part of part the becoming it versus it truly being. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Go ahead. But like, 
where missionaries would go and they would pretty much just try to westernize exactly versus taking into context the culture that they were going into. Right. So right. which is better. No, you, you said what I was going to say. That's good. So yeah. which is better. But wouldn't it also be a little bit odd to go into a culture and That's make all of your Christian people dress like Buddhist monks in order to communicate that you're a religious yeah, right. figure? Like, uh, right, but yeah. but the, the mid-ground of that is Hudson Taylor who stopped wearing Western suits and dressed oh, like, like, oh, absolutely. like an Oriental to fit in with Orientals. Yes. Not because he was going to be a Buddhist monk, right? And and so it's one thing to get the natives to start wearing clothes, it's another thing to get them to convert for, wearing shorts and right. t-shirts because that's what they're wearing. I'll read one that's closer to home. And so in some of the arguments, and we're talking about missions, we're talking about evangelism, we're talking about Pentecost, okay? I I have read of evangelical books on Islam and evangelical articles on Islam that react to the idea of a Western woman who's going in to evangelize wearing a head covering. Mm -hmm. Well, and then the line of logic goes something like this. Well, you don't understand what that head covering is. Well, you know, for the Islamic woman, the head covering means that they're submitting to Allah. And so if you wear the head covering or a hibab like an Islamic woman, you're saying that Muhammad is right. Oh, so you should just go in and completely disregard the culture you're going into and be immorally dressed and then try to communicate the gospel as some form of freedom to somebody? Does this make sense to anybody? No. And so, all right. I'm pretty sure it says in the Bible somewhere about not being an offense, doesn't it? Uh, there's not being an offense. And, and, and there, there, this is the, the true part of, of, you know, Paul writing, you know, to the Romans, I, I become as a Roman, to, you know, these, these different aspects of operating in culture. We miss this in Scripture because a lot of the New Testament, which a lot of the New Testament's drive is bearing witness to Jesus Christ globally. And so a lot of the Testament, these letters written to churches, involve a, an understanding of the culture. Okay? As a for instance, the household laws think... Uh, Ephesians 5, think Colossians, you know, the, and what we call a traditional household. Man's the head of the household, woman's subservient, children are quiet, and this is how the world runs. And Paul's writing of the household codes, you know where those household codes came from? Well, they come from the Old Testament. They came from Aristotle. And and it's, it's, it was it was it was Greek culture imposed from Greek philosophy that looked over its shoulder and said, you know, before these women had any rights, life was better. The household should run this way. The man should be just like the dread lord of his household. All slaves and women and children listen to him. And that was a well-ordered household. So so I kind of look at this. I've always kind of wondered. I try to look at it kind of. Big picture. So God in Abraham and Moses attempted to raise up a people and he gave them the laws and he gave them the ordinances and he gave them the forms and he gave them the temple and, and he gave them a model and, and he tried to create this thing. But I think he understood that when you're going to go out to the Gentiles and you're going to go out to the world, that model, it's not going to work anymore because you're not going to get the whole world which eats pork and crustaceans to build a temple. It's not going to happen, right? It's bigger than that. So, 
So God caused Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees. Which was pagan. Right. It's the culture he knows. Okay? God calls Moses and the children of Israel out of Egypt. So it's the culture they know. So when, when God gives Moses a revelation of the pattern of the temple, and he says, build it according to the pattern, and then he tells him who the craftsmen are to be. And then he puts his spirit on the craftsmen to give them wisdom. What kind of artifacts do you think these people are used to making? What kind of artwork do you think these people are used to seeing? What kind of temples do you think they are used to building? What do you think they built? Not something brand new they had no idea of. They replicated a space dedicated to Yahweh, analogous to the types of spaces they saw all in the world around them. It got contextualized. It got contextualized. This takes nothing away from the revelation of God, and it highlights his cooperation with man. So the point, the reason I brought all of that up is because by the second century BC, this is this is centuries after the law is given. Centuries after the law is given about Pentecost, centuries after harvest after harvest has come in and them celebrating Pentecost, by the middle of the second century BC, the culture develops that it is also, we are, you know what? This is also the time where the law came down on Mount Sinai. And so it becomes, by the time of the first century, that aspect of the celebration of Pentecost has almost superseded the celebration of the ingathering. That it becomes this commemoration of the giving of the law. And so you might say, well, what does that have to do with anything? I'll give you one little point on that. One little point on that is, is that when Moses came off that mountain with the law, and, and people were worshiping the calf, and he told the Levites to strap on their arms and go through the camp and kill anybody who was not being faithful to Yahweh, how many people died that day? 3,000. 3,000. Hey, how many people got saved on the day of Pentecost? About 3,000. You think God's paying attention to cultural context? You think God's speaking to the people in His context? Yeah, so even Jesus Himself, He could have come to the form. He could have come, and He, and he, and he gave honor to it. I mean, He said, go tell the priest, and, mm-hmm. and He visited the temple. But, he, but his, his context was culture. It was the people right. rather than the form. Yeah. So God honors these kinds of aspects, is what I'm saying. Is, is that we work in... This is... I don't mean to be overly complex. What we call principle, what we call the spirit of the law, goes by, goes by another fancy name, which is really correct theology. <laughs> a theological, a true theological approach to the world. In other words, that what God has expressed of His mind and heart, you exhibit in your life and action. That's, that's theology. That's theology in action. Um, true theology. Okay, so we need to think. We need to think theologically, in that sense. What is God saying about His nature? What is God saying about His character? What is God saying about His desire? That's theology, right? So these are the things that are being commemorated when the day of Pentecost came. That's what's being commemorated: the giving of the law. Jeremiah thirty-one, verse thirty-one. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. 
not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. What covenant was that? When they came out of Egypt. When they came out of Egypt. That's the law. That's Sinai. Right? So I'm going to make a new covenant, not like the covenant I made when I had that Passover, and we went ahead and did this Pentecost thing you're celebrating. I'm being anachronistic. I'm projecting acts into Jeremiah. Okay? But Jeremiah says this new covenant coming, it's not going to be like this old covenant. Verse 33. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each, and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I'll remember their sin no more. Praise God. Ezekiel 11, verse 16. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, though I remove them far from among the nations. So, God, Ezekiel is in captivity. Judah has gone into captivity, and the rest of Judah is coming. Okay? In, in, in Ezekiel's time, Israel has been taken away by the Assyrians for quite some time. And the last two tribes are left, Judah and Benjamin, and part of them have been taken away, and the rest are coming. And so the war between Ezekiel and some of the false prophets is, and in Jeremiah and some of the false prophets is, the Lord is saying, hey, y'all are going. I'm done with it. You all are going. And, and the false prophets are saying, oh, no, 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 no. God loves you. God will give you prosperity. God's with you. God will never abandon you. He's got His covenant with us. We have Jerusalem. We have the temple. We have the ark. We have Torah. Nothing's going to happen to us. And the Babylonians are outside the gate going, hey, we want the rest of you, right? And so in the middle of all this, God's talking to Ezekiel and He says, Thus saith the Lord God, Though I removed them far off among the nations, and though I scattered them among the countries, yet I have been a, yet I have been a sanctuary to them for a while in the countries where they have gone. Therefore say, Thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. I want to let you know, this is not God's promise for 1948. Mm -hmm. And um, the Israelites, they weren't looking for 1948 either. Okay? So we need to, as evangelicals, be a little bit more intellectually honest about Zionism and end times covenant theology and what God is calling and who Israel is in the Bible. Right? Now, I, don't misunderstand me. I'm not making a stand for we should, we should now just go ahead and join the Palestinian cause, you know? We just need to understand, though, that the modern nation state of Israel, though important and though significant, is not the entirety and might not even be a portion of what God is talking about with regard to gathering Israel back again. And we get, as, as Protestant evangelicals, we get so focused on the rapture and the return that we miss what God has already done, and we might miss what God is doing. But don't, don't make the mistake, we're not preaching replacement theology. We are not. 
So I don't. I think this is related. But wasn't there in in wasn't the intent of God with Israel from the sort of the beginning was that they would be sort of a gift to the nations, and that through them many would come. But it's kind of like because either way I see it, and maybe this is dumb, but I, they got all mixed up in the paganism, so God's plan was sort of thwarted, and so as a result. If, if y'all aren't going to cooperate so we can bring everybody in, then I'm going to send you out and I'll bring you back again. Kind of an idea. Yeah. But even that necessarily didn't work out because then now Jesus comes and then there's this, he goes out to the whole world. So, But still there's this whole idea of bringing in the whole, for God so loved the world. To so, bring them all back. Yeah. So it's kind of this continuous. So this is you thinking theologically about the Bible. Oh, right. Because what happened to the church in the first century. Jesus said, go into all the nations. And they said, Jerusalem's a nice place. And it took a Herod, and it took a Saul, and it took a persecution before they all started going out to the rest of the world. So there's always this problem. There's this, Yeah, there is this problem. And it's, it's, a, it's man's problem and God's desire. So yes, that was God's intent. That was the gospel to Abraham. Through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Right. That is that is the theme. That is the story. That's so, the so microcosm. So maybe a question, though, is what exactly did that mean? Did it mean that eventually Messiah would come and then he would die for the sins of the world? Is that what it meant? That's, that's a good portion of what it meant. But not all of what it meant. Verse 18. And when they come here, or when they come there, they will remove from it its detestable things and its abominations, and I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them, I'll remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. This is 1 Corinthians 3 where God is inscribed. You know, we're a written epistle of God, not, on, not on, on tables of stone, but the fleshly tables of the heart. This is the new covenant. This is the circumcision of the heart and the Spirit coming. Why? Verse 20, That they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them, and they shall be my people and I will be their God. I posit to you that keeping the rules and obeying them as a lot more than whether or not we are kosher, whether or not we are making sure that you know our clothing's just right and our cooking's just right and no one's touching blood. Okay. And we're not working on Sabbath. And, yeah, we're not, yeah, and or working for our salvation. <laughs> yeah, right. So I want to talk about the covenant, the spirit, and the wheat. Okay. Matthew chapter three, verse eleven. John the Baptist says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Just a side note. In Israel's history of enslavement and in Israel's history of degradation, Israel understood that they were to be God's chosen people. That there was this liberty in God that they understood intrinsically. But of all the functions that they might find themselves in servitude, one that they just could not conscience was the taking off of a master's shoes. That was just complete. Even if they were slaves, that was just completely beneath them to take off someone's shoes as a slave. John the Baptist who Jesus said was the greatest prophet, basically, of the Old Covenant. His position in comparison to the inheritors of the New Covenant is such 
that he is not he is he is beneath being able to remove somebody else's shoes. And your Lord and Savior, the ever-present servant master, is humble enough to wash your feet to make sure you walk right. So was he was he saying to the Jews, was he was he kind of saying you think you know God, but you're so far removed, you don't even understand what this man is going to be, kind of a thing. Is that what it, I mean? We don't we don't understand that sandals thing culturally. We just think, well, it's kind of a humble thing. But what you're saying is kind of on steroids. It's 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 it's, it's a huge steroidal hyperbole he's using in this in this preaching, where he's saying, look, you're coming you're coming to me. You're asking if I'm the Christ. Look, the one who's coming after me, he's going to baptize with Holy Spirit and fire. That's a Hebraic parallelism, you know? The Holy Spirit and the fire, right? Same kind of thing. And I'm, you know, I'm not even worried to carry sandals. So I no, I don't even hold I don't hold a candle. I can't hold his shoes. Verse 12. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and what? Gather his wheat into the barn. Gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So he's going to, Jesus is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. John's a prophet. He's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. And Jesus' winnowing forks in his hand. He's going to clear the chaff out, but he's going to gather his wheat into his barn. He's going to gather the wheat harvest. Acts chapter 1, verse 6. So, when they, come, when they had come together, they asked him, Lord... Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? I, I, okay. Alright, we went through this whole horrific event. You know, you came, Messiah's here, miracles are happening, everyone's questioning. Even John's wondering. You know, you're, you're healing the lame and the blind and the deaf and raising the dead. And then you die. Okay, now you're resurrected. Alright, enough already. We get the kingdom now? Do we get that Messiah thing we all are waiting for? Is that happening now? I mean, this is it, right? Israel on top. The rest of the world's the tail. Tired of being trampled on by Gentiles. Is, this, is it now, Lord? Is it now? He said, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has put into His own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be My witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is Jesus prophesying. This is the Lord speaking. And this is also Luke, the physician, telling you the outline of his book. <laughs> because Acts shows you the spread of the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the, uh, to the ends of the earth. He carries it all the way to Rome, and by carrying it to Rome, he carries it to the central powerhouse of the known world, all the Mediterranean. Okay? You're going to be my witnesses. So, in the long-standing experience as a full gospel Christian, <laughs> as a Pentecostal, as a charismatic, as a tongue-speaking tongue saint, <laughs> uh, much of my study, concentration, teaching, practice regarding the day of Pentecost has been centered around the gifting. 
in particular tongues. In particular, being able to teach people or, or hopefully help people understand God's promise and then experience what we typically call the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Uh, theologically, I believe the baptism happens when you get born again, but experientially it happens when people go, oh, that's the Spirit, okay? And generally that's exhibited through tongues, but not always, right? And it's not that these other lessons I've never known, I just, because of that focus, I become blind to as to what's going on. And the point of it, the point of it, he's going to baptize with Holy Spirit and fire and then he's going to gather his wheat into the barn. Well, how is he going to do that? Magically? By some sovereign appearance with a spirit pitchfork and just start stabbing people in the heart and throw them into heaven's barn? What's the process, saints? What's the process of gathering his wheat into the barn? Preaching the gospel. Witnessing for Jesus... Hello, you're the pitchfork. <laughs> you know, we're supposed to be involved, is the point. And to make us able to be involved, Absolutely. matter of fact, it's essential that you have the Holy Spirit's empowerment to be effective in the evangelization of the world. That's our job, bearing witness to the saving grace of Jesus Christ. That's the purpose of being baptized with the Holy Spirit. The purpose of being baptized with the Holy Spirit is not so I can speak in tongues and impress my friends. The purpose of being baptized in the Holy Spirit isn't just so I could prophesy in church and someone might think it's cool. The purpose of it is not just so I can lay hands on the sick and see them recover. Matter of fact, the purpose of laying hands on the sick and seeing them recover isn't, isn't, isn't necessarily just to see them recover. It's a sign that says, God, go to God, go to God, go to God. There's something going on here that's beyond your understanding. There's something going on here that's beyond your powerhouse. There's something supernatural happening. You need to pay attention to... Signs and wonders. Yes. Signs and wonders calling you to Jesus. That's the reason. Mm -hmm. That's the, and this is the piece where I have to keep bringing myself back to because I'm getting old and crusty. I'm like, who hasn't heard of Jesus? I guess plenty of people. Mm -hmm. I just need to keep... I just need to keep... Sharing that, not not and, and and if it's in the sense of hey, are you saved? Do you know Jesus? Uh, read this incantation with me, and then you're saved forever. Uh, it, it's beyond that. Acts two verse one. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. That's the connection to the divine presence in the Hebrew Bible. The next two connections that Luke brings to the fore we wouldn't necessarily catch because unlike him, we're not reading it in the Septuagint. He is, he is aware of his Hebrew Bible as the Greek Bible, the Septuagint. That's his reference source. When he's quoting Scripture, he's quoting from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And so he says in verse 3, And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. Divided in the Greek, diamerizo. And, and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men, where? Under. From every nation under heaven. 
though I have scattered them in all the nations, yet I will bring them to me. It wasn't 1948. It was in the first century, 50 days after Christ's resurrection, that this was fulfilled, beginning to be fulfilled. We've been in the end days for 2,000 years, which means it's, it's closer today than it was yesterday. Okay? But I'm telling you, don't miss the fact, don't, don't miss the fact of what God has done in the end day that so far has stretched nearly 2,000 years. This fulfillment to gathering Israel in began that day. Because on that day, the nations came in and God made good on His promise of the new covenant of putting the Spirit in the heart. All these men came. Right then and now. Yes, then and now. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered the English Standard Version says. That's the Greek word synkeo, which means confusion. They were all confused, the King James says, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. What's going on? Well, this is some of the stuff we were talking about. Because in Genesis 11:7, this is the Babel event where God says, Come, let us go down and confuse synkeo, their language. Let's confuse their language so they may not understand one another's speech. Mankind went to invade the heavenly realm by building a tower so they could establish their name. That's not to become renowned, like, I'm going to make a name for myself. That is like Jerusalem, where I chose to put my name. The sanctuary, where I chose to put my name. That's name theology. Man said, let's build a tower, make our name God. That's the rebellion at Babel when they built that tower. That's mankind reaching up to assault heaven. God says, hey, let's go down there and look at that. So a, a different view of this that we get of this event is in Deuteronomy 8. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when He divided, diamerizo mankind, he fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God. Genesis 10 is the table of nations. It's concordant with Genesis 11. In other words, the Genesis the 10 nation table develops out of what happened in Genesis 11. If you look at Genesis 10, the families are organized by family, tribe, and language. Tongue by tongue. This is, I know it seems subtle, but this is, this is telegraphing on Luke's part. Hey, something's going on here on the day of Pentecost that relates to Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, and refers back to Deuteronomy 32, the dividing of the nations, and then God choosing Jacob as his own inheritance. The day of Pentecost is the reversal of the curse of Babel where at Babel, God gave everybody a different language and scattered them throughout. At Pentecost, God gave men of a singular language, a bunch of languages, to gather people in, to bring them to Jesus. Praise God. Praise God. So, 
About done. Romans 8, verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. This is the signature of the new covenant. The Spirit of God, the Spirit of His Son dwelling in our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. I have primarily seen this as an identity. I've also used it in terms of teaching people to walk in speaking in tongues, just to have an understanding. The Spirit of God's already crying in your heart. You just got to give your mouth to it. The Spirit of God's crying out, Abba, Father. Okay? Now, that's um, not necessarily a wrong application, but it's not the point. Because... The point's very apparent when you see these connections in Scripture, but Paul kind of points out the point in the following verses. Verse 16, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. There's that identifier, that imager, that identity thing. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ, provided we suffer with Him, in order that we might also be glorified with Him. See that? I'm showing you the three places where this phrase, Abba, Father, are used. Here's the other one. Galatians 4, verse 3. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because ye are sons... God has sent the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The Spirit of who? God. The Spirit of His Son. The Spirit of His Son. So just like in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord, the angel of Yahweh and Yahweh become conflated in the same person, in the New Testament, Jesus the Anointed One and the Spirit become conflated. The Holy Spirit and the Spirit of the Son begin to be conflated. There's another place where it refers to him as the Spirit of Jesus. Mm-hmm. The Spirit of Jesus, right. So it's the Spirit of His Son that's in our heart crying, Abba, Father. So that you're no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Now, if it's the Spirit of the Son in your heart crying, Abba, Father, if this is spiritual utterance, if this is a result of Pentecost, of us being witnesses to Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit saying, Abba, Father. And the Spirit of the Son said, Abba, Father. Would it behoove us to see where Jesus said, Abba, Father? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And this is where Jesus said, Abba, Father. Mark 14, verse 36. He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. This is the signature work of the Holy Spirit in us to empower us to be true witnesses of the Gospel. To be where He is as His servants and to follow God's direction even if it's against our own will. And, and even, while, even while there is inherently pain in that idea, mm-hmm. at the same time, I think the great... Back to John 17 where we started the prayer of Jesus... It was about oneness. And I think the, the greatest revelation that we're going to get in heaven, we 
can't even begin to understand here, which is the oneness of God in Father and Son, mm -hmm. and that same oneness that Jesus wanted us to have, because in the spiritual realm, as we've been talking about, this idea of oneness, right now, we really, maybe we have a vague intellectual idea of what that is, we have no idea. What do you do when you live in a realm where everything is so connected that the moment you have a question in your mind, you also have the answer? That is the oneness of God. That is stunning if we begin to think about yeah, exactly. what that means. And I think, you know, is husband and wife supposed to be maybe a sort of a vague, no, black and white, old-fashioned photograph? Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> but well, the oneness of God in heaven is going to be... It's going to be a marvelous it's thing. It's going to be incredible. We're going to be like, oh my gosh, I never even knew this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's for sure. The wonder will never end. Yes. Yeah. Good word. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for taking residence in our heart. Lord Jesus, for cleansing a sanctuary for your habitation and living in us by your Holy Spirit. And I pray, Lord, that we can continue to learn from you and eat from you. In Jesus' holy name, amen. amen.